Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest is Mark Lakeman. He's the principal and design lead of City Repair. We're going to talk about an interesting topic, uh, how to turn your neighborhood into a village. So we'll find out what that means and talk to Mark about his company. So welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and then what's the premise of you know of your company. Yeah, so my background is that, I mean, my professional training is that I'm an architect and a permaculturist. And a, and a planner, so I do a lot of work in that in those realms of, of what I call design activism. We definitely have we have definitely have different areas of impact, and on oftentimes we're initiating projects on rather like a developer, but sometimes we're just working based on social capital. I I, I wear different hats. So on one hand, I'm working in the nonprofit sphere of city repair, and in another, um, I'm working in the design office called Communitecture or community architecture. And we're sort of spectrum of work that we do on one hand in the nonprofit is to try to retrofit kind of the placeless development landscape of the United States, city by city, town by town, with gathering places that were never developed at the beginning of each of sort of the communities at any scale, really having to do with the history of the USA being really laid out more for real estate development than for cultural development. So on one hand, nonprofit does that work, trying to help people come out of isolation and actually practice what you might call a truer form of democracy, you know, whether it's, no matter where they are in the political spectrum, community by community, everybody's isolated. And then on the other hand, in the design office, we take on larger projects that have to do with that kind of same spectrum of concern. So we're always trying to use, we're always working to use design as a means to build Okay, well, I mean, what does this mean? What What are you trying to do in a given city? How are you going to change yeah. to make a village? What does that mean? Yeah, so for instance, Portland, Oregon, which is where I live, is kind of the big petri dish where we're working and trying to, you know, have this kind of impact that's measurable. Uh, so, for instance, we have ninety-five neighborhoods without a single public square, and if you know, if a neighborhood is somewhat analogous to a village in scale, it should also be analogous to a village in terms of how people would actually have some relationship to each other and be able to you know, solve local problems, have creative expression, make the streets safer, engage their youth, and that sort of thing. So it happens that in those 95 neighborhoods, there's not a single public square, and that's typical of all American cities, because after all, we're all laid out according to the dictates of the National Land Ordinance of 1787, which basically, you know, a, was designed to obscure any kind of resident or, or native placemaking patterns and replace them with a gigantic development grid that was really is a it really is a blueprint of Roman colonialism, which I think almost no one would imagine would be laid out to help people talk to each other and build community. So the form that our work takes in the nonprofit sector 
is we've created ordinances in the city of Portland that have been replicated in something more than 100 cities in North America that enable neighborhoods to literally walk out into an intersection and say, we'll now turn this into a public square. And they can do it for free, and they can do it as many to as many street intersections as they want to all across their neighborhood. So it's literally taking community space that already exists but has become dominated by cars in the last hundred years and giving it back to the community so that it can start to play the functions that it used to play with a more cultural focus before cars came to dominate the landscape. So what does that mean? Like, where would you put this using empty lots or like, you know, how do you define where to put these things? How many who will take care of them, et cetera? Yeah. So literally the surface of the street. Um, So the right of way is quite a broad swap of space and then it intersects in, in intersections that we've come to think are just car spaces. So that, that, you know, that intersection, you know, if you're in a typical city, it can be 60 feet wide from property line to property line going across the both sidewalks and, you know, sidewalk on both sides, and then a kind of a median or a grass strip, and then street in the middle. Those grass strips can be narrow, they can be wide, but the right-of-way is just this kind of big swath that exists by a, a declaration or an ordinance of the corporation of each town or city from the very beginning of the town. Well, so that used to be a multi, multi-purpose space, and... You know, as I said, lately, and as, as we all know, lately, since about 1920, that space has been dominated by cars. So what, what this literally means is that communities all over our city are going out and they're reconsidering that space. They have community dialogues. They sit down together. They talk about what they love about their community and also the problems that they're facing, which always includes isolation and a sense of powerlessness. So they, they start by talking about what they can directly do if they had had access to that space in between their homes. So it's the idea that, that the street becomes a commons once again that brings people together. And so typically people will come up with a gigantic street mural and they'll fundraise for it in their own community and then they'll install it all together. Because after all, every, every neighborhood across the land has this broad range of skills and talents and everybody's got tools what are, you, what are you installing? Giant graphic. That's one thing. A giant Graf- graphic goes down the street. So, it, for instance, there's a neighborhood here called the Sunnyside neighborhood. So they their logo is a sunflower. And they put down this giant Fibonacci geometry sunflower in the street that is so big that it actually unites all the corners in this big luminous graphic. And then on the corners, they install things like interactive kiosks, solar-powered T-stations, is actually the context where the first Little Free Library and the first fleet of Little Free Libraries actually started back in the mid-90s. So places for exchanging, you know, materials and goods and games, places for artistic inspiration, gardens, fruit trees, flowers. Basically, the idea is that the space becomes available for the agency of the community to be able to engage in a place where they can build their own infrastructure that reflects their ideas and um, certainly becomes an amazing way of engaging children, getting them outside, getting them off the couch, getting them to do things to build a set of civic sensibility. So it's quite an exuberant result that inspires. So, what, so they, they put a graphic on the street on an intersection, but then what? I mean, does that encourage people to hang out in the intersection? Do they put barriers to cars? Like, do they put a roundabout? I mean, what, what happens? 
Well, a round bound tend to divide the space. So that, that kind of infrastructure is usually not part of what we're, what we're talking about. But things like curb extensions on the streets do help to provide more pedestrian space. But the immediate impact is that, that drivers notice that they're in a place that is different and that is more about you know community and pedestrians and children. So they, their behavior change, changes as they approach. You know, normally, when it comes to traffic calming, you're talking about displacing cars vertically or horizontally in order to get some, go to go slower. So to go to to go around something or to go over a speed bump to force them to slow down. But when it comes to placemaking, as basically a, a new driver awareness program, it has a market impact on their sense that this that this space that they're coming into is different than all the other spaces where there isn't creativity. And these interesting features to, to pay attention to. So the immediate impact is, first of all, before you even think about drivers, it's that the neighborhood itself start, suddenly starts to have this sense that people are part of a greater whole and not just groupings of individuated families. So it returns this kind of sensibility that is really more characteristic of, of you know urban history, that people are part of something. And then they get to be connected to their neighbors out of the space between their homes and not just like looking rectangle at a time at separate spaces. So it adds this whole other layer of people's sense of identity with the other people around them. So that's the prime. Yeah, but is this, is this at an intersection or is every road have a graphic on? I mean, if you have houses at an intersection, okay, I can see you sure, but what are they going to do? Are they going to go hang out in the middle of the road at barbecues? And Literally, yeah. Five. You know, what's going to happen? Literally, yes, that's, that's what happens. When people are done painting the street and then installing all these features out of the corners, it really does feel like a village. And then you have this wonderful effect of all the things on the corners actually creating an overall cumulative effect, like the place is whole, instead of just a bunch of squares divided by a street. So, yeah, people are out in the space. Um, obviously, you have to close the street with something like a block party permit in order to do this. But then people are out installing there's lots of kids involved, grandmothers, so it's very multi-generational. And it's closed long enough for people to then have a big pot. Like this is, I'm basically describing a neighborhood here. People have a big potluck. They have a bunch of music that, you know, you've got thousands of neighbors around you that can play music, you know, with instruments and stuff. So you get all these, usually kids will get up in front of everyone and do this kind of big talent show. And that's all on the same day. It goes into the night. And people go home feeling like the world is a better place. And it literally is right where they live. And then, you know, through the summertime, because you tend to do this in spring. In the summertime, we'll close down our, our street intersection as many times as we want to do things like, you know, movie night where we'll shut off the street light. Power company will come, shut off the street light, set up a big screen, fill the intersection with pillows and couches. And then we all just watch this movie together and have popcorn. So yeah, barbecues are happening, big potlucks, lots of musical performances. And I think that the biggest thing that we do is this silly, what we call no talent show, where anybody can get up, try to play a song or read a poem or do a performance. doesn't matter who it is, but kids coordinate it. So everyone in the neighborhood shows up. The intersections filled with people in folding chairs, watching this, these kids on a temporary stage. And it's just hilarious. So this has happened a few hundred times in our city. We literally have now we now have more community gathering places of all American cities because of this ordinance. 
and it's contributed to an increase in our participation broadly across the spectrum, political, social spectrum. So Portland has a dramatically increasing amount of participation in, you know, within the form of civic groups, neighborhood associations, and all sorts of initiatives that come from from communities where people live. So the effect is tremendous. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. How do you deal with the city and get, you know, how can you put a graphic on the street? How can you close it off? How can you get anything so that these things done? If you're to do it? Good point. Good question. All right. Well, that was a key thing to engage from the beginning. First, I got to say, though, in order to make that happen, for my part, as one of the original organizers of this, I was coming from a place where my dad was the founder of the urban design function of Bureau of Planning. So from him, I understood that our, our city just simply didn't have gathering places. And in fact, when we moved to Portland, there wasn't even one single public square, even downtown. So we had this big cultural cause that most people weren't familiar and they had no idea that this would be an issue because Americans just grow up without a sense of place or community gathering places. And we literally have to save our money and fly across the ocean in order to experience something like a, a village scale or a, a public square, like a piazza, for instance, in Italy, or a plaza in, in Spain or any Spanish-speaking country, a place in France, a platz in Germany. Basically, like these things happen all over the world, except in places like ours that were laid out the way that they were, kind of from an administrative point of view, rather than generated by culture. So we we had to deal with that question you asked from the very beginning, because you can't get away with messing with the streets for long uh, before you get in big trouble and you get shut down. So this obviously needed to be a sophisticated pre proposal. So this is basically what we did. We made a presentation to the Department of Transportation, and we said, and this was the wrong people to talk to, because they were traffic engineers. They were, at that time, they were not in connection with any of the, of the goals and benchmarks that actually are supposed to guide the development of a city. And really, every city and town in the USA has goals and benchmarks that have been reviewed by communities to some extent that are supposed to guide development itself, or even supposed to guide the adoption of codes and planning planning and building codes. So we went to the wrong folks and we said, hey, we think that we should have a, a gathering place in our community. After all, the street is the street network is the most community space of, of, of any other kind of amenity in the city, including parks. And they said, what are you talking about? That's public space and nobody can use it. That was an amazing thing to hear. Pretty soon though, we were in contact. I like that. That's public space. No one can use it. Thereby yeah, the definition of public space. Yeah, it's a paradox. I think uh, America has a lot of paradoxes that we're, we're scarcely waking up to still. So we got in touch with the mayor, and it happened that these were issues that the mayor cared about. 
and she saw a photograph of what we had already done in our community, and she leaned into it. She asked the ombudsman, you know, the ombudsman is in every city is basically like Superman. You know, the mayor just says to the ombudsman, make this happen, and every bureau has to hop. So we were there in her office when she turned to this guy, Michael Mills, and said, Michael, make this legal. So suddenly we were sitting with the city lawyer to adopt the idea that a street intersection can and should become a public square. And it's not just it's not just a leap of faith. Like we were literally showing her like my favorite example of a village in the world is Siena, where you can literally look at the aerial view of Siena and see that, you know, for a population of a typical American neighborhood of about 15,000, which is what Siena is in Italy, they have 37 outdoor gathering places. And then you can look at your own neighborhood and ask yourself, well, with no with no gathering place in my neighborhood, no wonder my crime statistics aren't this high. And my public health rates are this low. And then you look at Siena and you see that their crime rates are super freaking low and their public health indicators are super freaking high. And, the, and that's what we did with the city council. That's what we did with the mayor and the city lawyer. We said, look, there's a correlation. There's literally nowhere for people to gather and everybody's told they have no power in their own community. So within three months, this was adopted unanimously by the city council, and they basically waxed eloquent, and they said, on this day, we do this revolutionary thing. You know, if, if communities will show up in their own space, they will now have a field for creative participation that may change, you know, the destiny of our city. That's a tall order. But when you consider that everybody's disengaged, and this is a means to re-engage them, you know, maybe there's some promise to that. I, it's definitely something that I see is real. So making it legal from the beginning um, had to happen. And because I was the son of this, you know, kind of sort of pioneer urban design planner guy on um, Richard Lakeman, they, they listened to me maybe they, they more than they might have somebody else because my dad, my dad had a rep for making the city a better place. And here was this next generation. So there's a little bit of per personal contact in it. But the cool thing is not everybody, every city has to have that kind of dynamic because now people are just calling Portland's Department of Transportation, you know, like, say, Toronto in Canada calls or Seattle calls. And this, this is what's happened. They've said, you know, hey, can we talk to your, your, your DOT and get information about what you guys are doing? In fact, this, all, this went all the way up to the top of the chain in the Nashville Transportation Administration. And uh, at first they reacted and thought, that's crazy. That can't possibly be done. And then they started to put like pictures of all these street paintings on their wall calendars for the national administration. So then the you know, Obama administration started to fund it as a youth gang violence prevention strategy, which is a beautiful thing to see. So the secret of this, though, all the magic of it is that people are supposed to have these places. When we put them in or when we help them happen, a lot of people think, oh, this is a great idea. It's a new idea, but it really isn't. It's an ancient idea. It, it goes, it's a human habitat, basically, and it's a revelation for Americans. And personally, my interest is in the fact that whether you're conservative or a liberal, everybody needs a community space. And for me, that's powerful because I don't want to bring people together. But what, is, what do they make legal? Being able to do a graphic or what, where were all the things that are now doable? Versus yeah, not? well, it's interesting how it's all played out. So the first thing is that they said, okay, the street surface itself, is up for reconsideration. First of all, you can paint, you know, you have to generate your own local graphic. You can't have any corporate logos. 
It has to be completely original and it can't have words or symbols. It has to be a completely original idea of, of maybe, you know, something about your history. Like one neighborhood painted a bunch of wheels and turbines because in their neighborhood they manufacture wheels and turbines. And as I said, you know, another neighborhood is identified with sunflowers. So they tend to put down things that has to do with their own identity. So that's a huge graphic effect, an artistic exercise. But then on the corners, you can, well, let's see. In my neighborhood, we have on one corner, a solar-powered tea station. So it glows at night, and anybody can walk up to it and get a cup of tea. There's always hot water there on a counter on this little thing that looks like a, a huge glowing flower at night. And right next to it is a pavilion topped with a living roof and a beautiful skylight on top. And under the pavilion is a, is a giant wraparound bench. So you can get a cup of tea and sit down on the bench under cover, rain or shine. And then that's, both of those features are nestled into edible landscapes. So lots of berries and fruit trees and nut trees. That's one corner. On another corner, you've got another bench that kind of looks like it's from Thailand because we had some some Thai people in the neighborhood and who influenced the design. And that's covered with a, a big glass pavilion overhead. And then literally the first little free library is on that same corner with a fountain. On another corner, there's a big bulletin board with information and kind of systems, a native plant garden, and then a beehive-shaped newspaper dispenser that a bunch of teenagers wanted to make. And on the final corner, a huge kid's clubhouse wrapped around the living tree. It's filled with toys all the time. So kids can come there and just play. And then there's an art and poetry art museum. It's just a, a little thing that you open the cabinet doors and you find all of these pictures and poems and stuff inside. So the idea is that, you know, if an American wants to go to a village center with the essential functions of like a cafe effect or a bookstore or a flower store or just to get some stuff, basically to meet other people. Now they can do that by repurposing the right-of-way. No, not really repurposing, diversifying its use. So cars still go through, but they go through respectfully. And everybody in the neighborhood, you know, identifies with that space. So their own behavior locally changes. Well, who maintains this? Who raises the money to do all this stuff? I mean, like, what does it cost? Again, how does it get maintained? Something needs to be fixed or run. Yeah, good good question. Great question. So it's the people who themselves that live right there. This is, a, this is the most crazy thing. The people who live right there, you know, they have the power to design it and install it, program it, coordinate all the activities there, and then they also maintain it over time. So... This is the craziest thing, but it hasn't been until this moment that a place-based community in the USA actually has authority over the public space right where it lives. That's basically, you know, so I'm partially historian of the development of the colonial grid itself going back thousands of years, and I've written a whole bunch about this. My mom's this urban historian, you know, so that's that sounds a lot like what my dad does, but I'll tell you what, it doesn't guarantee that they get along at all. But about the colonial grid, this is a really big deal. When people live in, in development grids, those grids come along with people being told that they don't have power where they live to affect anything. It's been a long, long time since people living in a grid actually had the power to affect their own immediate environment. So that's really the, the, the stroke of genius, so to speak, of this project is it, it really upends the diagram of power and it makes it so that people can actually have a voice 
in their own neighborhood directly, and not just by voting, but by saying, let's do this with our kids outside right where we live with other people, and you can just do it. In fact, this is crazy thing, Richard. The city council has made this so easy now, and, and the reason they have made it easy is nothing's going wrong. It's vandalism happens less, car accidents happen less, like all oh, this behavior changes. There's no vandalism. The place where I live is where it's been happening the longest, which is 28 years now. There hasn't been a single act of vandalism all that time. So what we've learned is that probably vandalism happens in the absence of ways for young people to be able to engage with others and express themselves. They're kind of lashing out because they're frustrated that they don't have a way to actually do it legitimately. So these legitimate ways for youth to connect and engage constructively seem to be compensating in some way for an absence. Anyway, it's uh, it's remarkable that way. How long have some of these structures and things have been going on? You know, I, need, I, need, I don't know, I need interesting success stories. Like you talked about some of the parties or things that go on. I can see that happening initially, but how is it kept up? Is there a calendar that someone keeps where they have regular events in a neighborhood? I'm picturing this at an intersection what happens to the people that are midway down the block? You know, they're again, the people at the intersection, it's going to affect kind of their front yard in a way, you know, what's right outside their house in the street. But yeah. people in the mid part of the block, they're further away. They maybe don't have like, you know, people hanging out near their house, but they also don't benefit from the beauty of it. So how, what's yeah. that dynamic like for the people on the block that are close and far? Really good question. It used to be that the city would require that everyone within two blocks was involved in, in all four directions in the two affected streets that were overlapping. And, uh, but the people on the corners would have veto power. So, you know, if they didn't want to have it, if even one of them didn't want to have it, then it wouldn't happen. So, you know, it obviously it affects them to a greater extent and they have a bit more liability for what happens because after all, homeowners have some amount of liability for what happens on the sidewalk and the grass strip before you get to the street. So what's interesting is that while the city used to require everyone on both sides of the street, both street faces that were affected by it, potentially affected by this, now because it's been such a success, all you need in order to um, be able to approve one of these projects is just those four foreigners. And it used to be that you would have to have both the residents and the property owners, if the property owners didn't live there, you'd have to have all of them signed. But now, because it's clear that property values are not negatively impacted and there's all these community values that are actually supported that it's only the people who happen to live there that actually need to sign the document in order to support the project so there seems to be a benefit i can tell you that among all of the proposals for doing this project in the history of it in you know 20 27 28 years now we have a 96 percent success rate only 4% of the projects that have been proposed haven't happened. So that means that people on the corners apparently identify enough with the project goals that they say yes to it. And I'm quite sure that there are some people who need some convincing or they need more information or you know, they, they get into it and then they see that whatever it is that they see helps them to feel good about it. But you know, basically, what I think what I've seen is when you see a bunch of kids getting involved and doing things constructively, it helps everyone feel like the neighborhood is actually becoming safer. And even though it does impact people on the corners more, they're getting more out of it than a sense of disturbance. And really, the amount of like big activity, like the big day when you repaint the street, 
like in our neighborhood, we repaint the street every every year with a new design, actually. And then we have the No Talent Show and the movie night. Those things are right in front of people's houses. But this is what's interesting. Those houses are filled with kids. So this is really good for those families as it brings them into contact with all these other families of kids. So, in fact, one house is being modified and expanded to accommodate an even bigger family that's moved in while a couple of retirees moved out to another place. So there's kind of this organic process of self-selection that happens where people really who want to be there choose to be there. And I suspect, you know, I should have written or read a book about this a long time ago, but I suspect it works like a lot of other villages where your primary social spaces are going to be inhabited at the perimeter by people who really want to live right there. And then people who don't want as much activity will live down the side streets on the on the tertiary streets or something. So probably the same problem. Well, I can yeah, I can see realtors incorporating pictures of the like, you know, so if I'm looking at real estate, if there's the ABC neighborhood, usually what a realtor or someone says that it means it's more desirable. Oh, you're in the ABC neighborhood. Oh, it's really nice there and it's uh the streets are this and that. So I could see if you put this in and then the neighborhood had its name and you advertised it as a place to live, it would probably make it more desirable for a lot of the houses for people to live there because that's already in place. Yeah, no doubt. I think you're right. Hmm. Okay. I would certainly see it as an, you know, I mean, if the law of, law of supply and demand applies, you know, you've got this unusual amenity that maybe doesn't appeal to everyone, but it definitely appeals to some people. Big. Yeah, it's nicer than just living in like an antiseptic neighborhood of all new build houses that are exactly the same and is an HOA that are like Nazis and you can't do anything in the, you know, even if you leave a garbage can out, they find you. And it's like the polar opposite of what I've seen a lot of neighborhoods turn into. There is no neighborhood. It's like a, a jail. Yeah, I absolutely agree. They're, they're, they're opposite reflections. Okay. Well, very good. For people that want to do this in their neighborhood, do you have a kit or advice or a package of things that would help people do this in their city? Sure. Yeah. They can go to our website, which is cityrepair.org. And, you know, they can probably just, uh, there's probably a contact right there on the website, something like info at cityrepair.org or, or office at cityrepair.org. They can also just contact me directly if they want. At my email's a bit goofy, but Moontrout, M-O-O-N-T-R-O-U-T, at cityrepair.org. And I'm always happy to field questions and uh, send technical information to people. We have a book, uh, and we also have an annual festival where we train people from all over the world. So we have lots of people coming from different countries. They stay in Portland for about 10 days. We run a school during the morning, and then in the afternoon, there's about 45 projects being implemented all over the city. So uh, a lot of these things happen in big pushes all across the city at once. Mm. You can find out more about that at cityrepair.org, too. Excellent. Last question on this. Uh, is there a size of a neighborhood that makes it not workable? If, is, if the street's too narrow or the street's too big, or if the neighborhood like is right next to a you know major road, um, are there... Are there like geographic obstacles that make this difficult to do? Great question. I think that there are definitely geographic obstacles and features that make design more challenging. Definitely like a freeway and its, and its issues with sound that make people not even want to be outside. I would say that the, the conditions that are most difficult are, are is this. When people live in high-density buildings, they're all very close to each other. 
but they're all disallowed from having access to the spaces that they move through. They're not able to do anything in the elevator, the the, the lobby, the hallways. Um, it's all very regulated, but mostly that's because they don't own the building. There's a management company that is managing that building. And so those kinds of, those are the hardest ones to work in. And if you're a community organizer, you can't get into the building. You can't even let them know that there's a walk party happening in a couple of days or something. So those people are very, very isolated, but it's mostly because of the ownership diagram and the lack of having a voice. On the other hand, you know, if that same building is a condo association, then they actually do have the ability to make a difference and, and reinterpret their own space and, and, and activate that space. But as you said, they tend to be dominated by this kind of HOA mentality of, of just mutual kind of restraint or, or repression. And then it doesn't always work that way. I was in Brooklyn a few years ago. Actually, it was 2004, so it was a while ago. And somebody took me to see this this uh, apartment building, had, which had been utterly transformed into a vertical village. The building was about 12 stories tall. And as we approached the building, all this vitality spilling out onto the sidewalk. So they'd made the sidewalk into something like a piazza with all these streamers overhead and umbrellas over tables and planters to contain the space and uh, sculptures and artistic stuff. And, and then we walked into the lobby and it had been turned into a performance venue with a bar. Oh my God, who what doesn't want to live there? I mean, okay, let's just get capitalist about it. Wouldn't that make people want to live there more than less? Then we walked into the elevators. There were three elevators that had all been converted into smoothie bars. I mean, at least the one I got into was a smoothie bar. I got in and they had stools with people sitting there with drinks. You just squeeze into the elevator and you order your drink. You get up to your floor and it hasn't even been made yet. So you got to ride back down until you get your drink. And in the meantime, there's all these people in there talking to each other, enjoying their drinks. And eventually we got off on a floor and I spent hours in that building going from floor to floor. And I don't think it was everyone in the building, but it seemed that way. Because you would walk into an apartment and it would be like this chocolate cake party. You know, you go into another another, uh, another room or another apartment and it was this whole other, like a performance venue. And eventually we ended up on the roof and they turned the whole thing into a Bedouin village, you know, of pillows and tents and tea. So they had taken over their building and the, the hallways were filled with art and poetry and photographs so that they'd taken ordinary, boring, sterile hallways and turn them into like a, a, an artistic gallery. And this is something that any building should do. You know, if you had the, the, the ability to actually work together and you aren't so regulated by a management company. Anyway, that's the biggest obstacle. And I also happen to think it's the biggest opportunity as I saw there in Brooklyn. Okay. No, really interesting. Is there a repository online where you have a bunch of photos of how this looks, you know, so listeners can get a, a visceral feel of what, what you're describing? Yeah. At cityrepair.org, you'll see a bunch of things. And then if there's a gallery and then you can definitely go to Google images and just Google's painted intersections, city repair. You could Google my name, Mark Lakeman, and there's a bunch of stuff associated with my name. I'm just one guy in the middle of all this. So, but it happens to be that I'm the old dog who's still around. So that's why I say you can find him through my name. Uh, there's also some TED Talks and other stuff on YouTube, uh, all under those headings. And then the last thing is my design office, communitexture.net. You could go to communitexture.net and see all kinds of bigger projects including proposals to transform um, major cities in the Bay Area uh, in response to climate change. 
So, but all related to this kind of participatory design work. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a great call. Very, very interesting uh, type stuff. And I encourage people to look up uh, and see some of the pictures of what you're describing. And, uh, you know, at first the idea is like, what? And then it seems to grow on you is, is how I feel. So I think people may feel the same way. But again, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. Have a really great night. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.